Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, Rob Larity is back with me to review what happened in markets in the last week and anything else on our mind. Um, thank you so much for those of you who have sent us some feedback on this weekly podcast. It is hugely helpful. Please feel free to continue sending us your feedback. We listen to it and we're trying to adapt to it. So um, also, if you happen to have a chance, please consider rating the podcast or leaving a review wherever you listen to it. it takes just a couple seconds of your time, but for us, it is immensely helpful in getting the word about the podcast out there. Um, and any help you can give us in doing that is much appreciated. Um, otherwise, um, at least for me personally, I'm sure a lot of listeners in the United States, it has been a trying week just reading all the headlines and reading all the news. Um, we didn't touch on any of the things that are going on really in the U.S. in the podcast, but just wanted to say that I hope that this conversation maybe allows you to disconnect a little bit. It, it certainly helped me do that. Um, so cheers, take good care of each other, stay safe, and we'll see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All right, Rob, what's, uh, well, first of all, how are you doing, Rob? Welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. I'm doing great. I will be doing great when I get through this week. It's been a doozy, um, but um, I've had my head buried down and stuff. So why don't why don't you let me play dumb at first and let me ask you uh, sort of top line what's going on in in markets this week? Because I haven't been able to pay too close attention to it. Yeah. Well, if you were to just kind of glance at the headline, you would think that not much has changed because the indices haven't done too much. There's been a little bit of a rebound, but nothing much. Um, but from my perspective looking at the underlying components of markets, you can really feel that the whole dynamic of the market is changing. Um, and there's a few things that I think are uh, noteworthy. The first is that foreign currencies are now going up and previously they were going down. So the euro is uh, back up you know, in the 1.07 range. Um, whereas it had been in free fall before. And the same for the Japanese yen. It has rebounded um, quite a bit, um, which is a big change from what you've seen for the last two or three months or so. Um, so foreign currencies turning around. Uh, you have interest rates well, actually, turning can I, around. Can I interrupt you for a second, Robin? Asked, is that does that mean that foreign currencies are getting stronger or does that mean that the dollar is getting weaker or does that mean both at the same time? I mean, value-wise, I guess that that means what it means. But when when you see that happening this week, does that, do you feel like something's happening with the euro or with the yen or is something happening with how people are feeling about the dollar or is it something else entirely? Well, both at the same time, as you say. And it's hard to pick out one versus the other. Um, and we can get into specific things with each of those countries and, you know, yen specific things and euro specific things. But for the most part, the dollar is weakening and loosening up against pretty much everything, um, which is a big deal. Uh, you know, I think you had a um, uh, uh, Luca Grauman on your 
podcast uh, a while back, and he was talking about how the dollar is sort of the flight to safety asset. Um, and when you get that flight to safety, you get a squeezing of global liquidity conditions. So things get tight. And that's what we've been experiencing with, um, with the rise of inflation and with the rise of short-term interest rates in the U.S. relative to everywhere else. The whole financial system has been tightening like a drum. And now you're starting to see that turn around. Um, and that's a, a dynamic that plays across all these different countries, um, you know, no matter what the individual story is in Europe or Asia or, or what have you. Um, and you can see that in interest rate futures as well. So euro dollar futures um, had been dropping, which essentially means that the cost to borrow dollars uh, outside of the U.S., in, in the non-US markets was going up. So liquidity conditions were tightening mm. for dollars abroad. And that's really turned around sharply. So the Euro dollar futures have rebounded in the last week or two um, with, a, with a vengeance, which means dollar liquidity is loosening up in that way as well. Uh, so that's a big change underneath the surface of, you know, if you're just looking at this, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, um, and I think a very positive one. Does that also mean, is it, would it be accurate to say that that translates into less demand for dollars and that's why it's loosening up? Um, yeah, I think that that's fair to say. There's a lot of different factors that play into it. So it's hard to pick out, you know, how much of it is one versus the other. Um, but definitely less demand for dollars, um, you know, one of the things that drives dollar demand, especially in an environment like this, is when short-term interest rates are are rising, um, it, it draws in capital from abroad. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at a chart of the Japanese yen against, um, you know, U.S. Treasury bond yields, they are essentially mirror images of each other, which is interesting because you know, Japanese investors are some of the most notorious yield hunters. You know, they're like truffle pigs going around the whole world <laughs> trying to sniff out where you can get the best yields. And, you know, for a long time, they were big players in places like New Zealand and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, there's a big element of that. So it's about primarily capital flows and, and whether people want to uh, shift their capital into the U.S., um, and generally, when capital is moving away from the dollar, it's a, it's a fairly bullish sign. Uh, it means all else equal, less risk aversion. That seems like a pretty big psychological shift from where we were last week when everything seemed, seemed doom and gloom. So um, what did you have other indicators that were interesting to you that happened this week? Or, or do you have an idea of why there's been that sort of sudden pivot away from feeling doom and gloom? I mean, maybe part of it is just we talked a little bit about narratives last week, too, and how quick narratives seem to change. Um. Well, I think you have to go region by region. But generally speaking, there's a there's a, an absolute story and a relative story. Mm. So the relative story is the U.S. is, you know, clearly experiencing a slowdown, if not a recession. And that's well understood now. 
Um, so relative to the rest of the world, the U.S., which previously had seemed like uh, the last man standing, the the bloom is off the rose a little bit on a relative basis. So that has been playing out. Um, but then going into specific regions, you know, there's a lot of narratives that are turning more positive now, even if subtly and at the margin. So we talked about China uh, last week, and I don't know if you have any updated thoughts about what's going on there, uh, but clearly they're trying to start stimulating their economy again. Um, and then in Europe, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what's going on in Europe this week. I know politically there's a lot happening, um, but from an economic standpoint, uh, I'm I'm really very bullish on Europe, and I think the market is starting to recognize that. Yeah, I mean, on China, <laughs> I mean, the, the narratives flip. The, the narratives actually don't flip on China. And in, in Western press, I find that there is one narrative about China, and no matter what is happening in China, China is bad, and China is uninvestable, and you can't trust China, and it's too risky. And th there are aspects of that that that, that are true. But for instance, um, so Premier Li, who is supposed to be nominally in charge of economic policy and President Xi Jinping had sort of taken over control from Li in a lot of these different areas. But he sort of was making the rounds in the last week and has been talking about all the things the Chinese government needs to supercharge growth and to increase economic stability and help Chinese businesses and all these other things. And you know, the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal, or I shouldn't say the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but the Wall Street Journal headlines on that were, oh, Xi and Li are clashing and there's tension at the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's just like, I mean, maybe, but there's literally no evidence of that. And I doubt anybody who has information on that is leaking that to the Wall Street Journal of all places. I think China, as, as we discussed last week, is just dealing with the after effects of having to maintain this pandemic because it's more important politically at the domestic level for them than it is for some of these other places. But um, why don't we stick with Europe for a second? Because I think that's one place where, even though you and I come at this from very different um, angles, we sort of end up on the same place. And it's a place that I don't think anybody else is. I think there has been so much pessimism about the future of Europe as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. And I think for both you and me, for different reasons, it actually just kind of confirmed um, <laughs> some of our more positive feelings about Europe. But uh, before we got on the podcast, you were talking about Sweden and some other interesting data that came across your desk. So why don't we why don't we dive into that? Because I think that's a rich place for some for some conversation. Yeah, well, I wouldn't single out Sweden as something I'd have a particular view on, but it, it did happen to release some interesting data this week that confirmed something that we've been seeing and talking about earlier, which is the huge divergence in sentiment in Europe between consumers and business. So Sweden released its numbers this week, and they put out these sentiment indicators on a monthly basis. And the consumer sentiment indicator in Sweden hit all-time lows. It's terrible, just so bad. And yet, the business indicator in Sweden, as far as business confidence, is holding at all-time highs. So higher than you know the pre-COVID period. Um, and that's not an outlier. You see similar numbers if you look at Italy, France, uh, the German uh, index, even though Germany has, uh, you know, arguably uh, war related issues closer to its doorstep, the business sentiment index in Germany has held up remarkably well. Um, so 
that's really noteworthy because I don't know if you ever really see divergences that are so stark. Um, so those numbers suggest that German um, and European businesses more broadly are sniffing out some big opportunity here. They're getting bullish. And I don't think that that's something that's really well recognized uh, among investors right now. Well, if we're trying to pick apart why there's that divergence in sentiment, then um, I mean, I guess it could, I, I'm just trying to spitball here a little bit. So, I mean, one possibility could be that businesses have no inherent understanding of the pressures on individual consumers and that rising, rising energy prices and rising food prices and all of these things that affect sort of daily economic life is getting really, really hard for consumers and there seems to be no end in sight. I guess the flip side of that could be, though, that the consumers don't understand um, that however depressing war is and however terrible the headlines are every day, and um, war is usually good for economies and it's usually stimulating for economies. And even though the European Union is decidedly not at war with Russia and is not intervening militarily for Ukraine, um, the war does seem to have galvanized Europe into understanding that it has to reorient its supply chains and it has to spend a lot of money to change the way that businesses and, and governments in, in Europe function if they're going to be competitive kind of long term. And that should be good for businesses because that means a lot of investment and a lot of good things for businesses that maybe aren't good for consumers. Um, do you think there are any other scenarios? Do you think both of those, do you think the consumer and the business can be right at the same point? Or maybe the, just the consumer is not able to get the kind of perspective that a business is and be able to think out sort of that three to five year level? Where, where do you land on that? No, I think that's largely it. I mean, consumers look at today and on average, they don't think very critically about where things are going to move, you know, two or three steps along the uh, path. Whereas if you're running a business, you know, there's a selection bias and the people who are running businesses are thinking that way for the most part. Um, so there's clearly some of that. Um, on the notion of war being good for economies, um, I think that's absolutely right. And especially when you're thinking about um, economic war of a sort, and, and this is something that we've been writing about and talking about for the last two or three years with our clients is just this notion that the more scared Europe gets, the better it is um, because it means they're going to lay out needed investment to shore up their economy, to shore up their infrastructure, to um, create the integration that they need. Um, it's funny, I was just reading, um, I was reading a book uh, this week and it was talking about, I don't know if you know, you probably know more about this subject than I do, so I'm curious to hear if you know what the background to this was, but it was talking about something which it called the great economic war um, in Russia, which I, I don't know if that was a common term at the time, but the idea was as the Cold War really started to heat up, Russia uh, accelerated its investment in its own um, economy and, and capacity building. And one stat that really uh, struck out to me was from 1955 to 1965, oil production in Russia went up by 10 times mm. um, just because of the sheer amount of investment that they put into it and their desire to you know, build an independent capacity that wasn't uh, dependent on trade and, and things like that. Um, do, do you see any similarities between now and then? 
That's a great question. I mean, what do you remember what book you were reading? I'm just curious. It was a book. Uh, it was that World for Sale book. World for Sale, uh, yeah. Be- because the background was that this created a huge opportunity for the trading houses because mm. Russia came onto the scene as a major player in the oil market, whereas previously they had been much less so. And because of the you know, difficulties of them being who they were, you needed third parties to really handle the trading of the oil, which is very apropos for today. Yeah. I mean, when you think about what the Soviets accomplished in the 50s and 60s, I mean, I think it's, I think we all look back and say, oh, the Soviet Union was much weaker than the United States and the United States oversold the threat. Um, but I mean, the amount of, as you said, I mean, it wasn't just oil production. I mean, this is when Russia produces a nuclear program basically from scratch. Like, yes, they steal the plans and they steal the information, but that's still a lot of capital. This is also when they send the first satellite off into space and you get the whole space race thing. I mean, the the, the Soviet Union really was producing a lot. But for me, the the book on this is um, is Tony Jutt's post-war. And I, I miss Tony Jutt more and more every day. He died well before his time because he got ALS right when he was sort of at the prime of his intellectual career. But he in the in the nineties wrote a book. I can't remember if he published it in the nineties or the early two thousands. But he wrote a book basically saying, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we really have to go back and rewrite European history. And post-war was really the first book to think about European history differently that way. And when he talks about sort of the nineteen fifties and sixties in Europe economically. Um, there are some elements of what you're talking about. There was a fear of the Soviet Union that made the European countries want to integrate more together. And I would argue that the European Union that we have today is a result of that. The European Union likes to dress up its um, its integration in the garb of sort of you know moral righteousness and European values and cosmopolitanism. And I think some of that has emerged in the last 30 years, but that's not where it comes from. It comes from pure realpolitik hey, the Soviets are over here, and if France and Germany and all these different countries don't band together, we're not going to be able to resist, and communism is going to sweep over our countries. So I think in that sense, there is a similarity between the sort of common threat and the way the common threat is going to unite Europe in ways that wouldn't have been possible when you didn't have the common threat there. The big difference between that time period for Europe and now goes back to your point about consumer sentiment because what happened alongside all of that investment and all of that integration was a massive baby boom europeans you know they had just come off a war all the soldiers were home they just had a lot of sex and a lot of babies (laughs) and you get that huge demographic dividend and that huge growth in consumption and that i don't think is going to be happening for europe or the united states anytime soon i saw you sent a a note on our Slack about even India's having fertility rates go uh, below replacement levels. So it'll be interesting to see whether that increase in investment and that common enemy, what that means in an environment where Europe is getting older and where you're not going to have consumers that are that buoyant or optimistic because they're older and because older people are, are more conservative. And I could see that going in a couple of different directions, but I would say yes on the common enemy front, but um, the demographic picture is much, much different. I think that's a really good point to bring up because like, I can see that the difference between the post-war period that Tony Jett writes about, and by the way, <clears throat> he doesn't get any attention for this, but his books on French intellectuals in the 1950s are really, really good and totally underrated and unknown. Um, 
anyway, that's a different subject, but just a shout out to Tony Jute. Yeah, shout out um, to Tony Jutt. Pour one out. <laughs> Pour one out. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that was so noteworthy about that period was it wasn't really a consumer um, friendly uh, period of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, I mean, like, I don't know off the top of my head what the numbers were for core of continental Europe, but like, if you look from the late forties or the early fifties until 19, you know, late 1970s, just the penetration of households with a refrigerator, households with a television, um, basic consumer items went from, you know, low, uh, uh, single digits in places like Turkey and, and, you know, somewhat higher in, in France and Germany to, you know, 80, 90, 95%. So you had this coming together, this fear-based um, coherence, but it was very consumer friendly. And I, I wonder about that now because um, I think you posted this, but there was some piece where I think it was Olaf Schultz or someone said, we're going to have to pay the, the security premium now um, do, do you know what I'm talking about? It came out this week. I thought you had tweeted it or something. Yeah, it sounds familiar. But the basic idea that, hey, consumers, you have to suck it up because this is the price of securing our independence, um, which I think is really interesting language and not to take one anecdote and blow it out of proportion. But one theme that I think about a lot, and I think this could be the subject of a great book in the future is fear and forced savings or fear and kind of the balance of payments. And what I mean by that is if you look at a lot of countries where they've been threatened from the outside, Japan, China, um, uh, Russia during the Soviet period, their economic model was based on sort of mobilizing savings and using it to direct investment which is not good for households because more of their production is getting confiscated. Um, but they tend to do that in the service of some broader social goal or national goal. Um, and I think this is a really interesting pattern, like even not to get too crazy and esoteric here, but like, even if you go back to feudal times, like, and you think about the feudal system where you had the knight, uh, in the center of the community and he was extracting taxes from all the peasants and using those to purchase armor, a horse, the sorts of things that are designed for the common defense. And that was like, that was like the tank of the time. Those were extremely expensive items. And yet that system persisted because you needed to squeeze households in order to, you know, uh, mobilize, the collective savings and put it into something that was going to protect you in a period of fear and anarchy. And um, I wonder if, not to go on and on, but I wonder if that is what you're starting to see a little bit in Europe, where, you know, the notion of living the good life, and that is sort of the sum and bonum of European society, is going to take the back seat to, you know, hey, we have to make some sacrifices because uh, shit's getting real, uh, to put it, you know, <laughs> yeah, way. which, 
which is a lot easier though for a younger population than it is for an older population because if europe is older like a lot of the people are ready to live the good life now because they worked a lot and they don't want to be told hey like sort of tighten your belts now and things are going to get better later but when you were talking i was also thinking about one of the the points that judd make and th- this was in some ways the one that blew my mind the most was that you know when you think about the 1950s and 60s well actually let, let me rewind for a second today germany is considered you know an industrial powerhouse german cars are the best if you're going to go buy any kind of industrial product if it's german you know that means it has it's it's really good it's really efficient it's really reliable um, same way, by the way, for sort of Italian luxury goods, right? Like you see Americans running around wearing Ray-Bans or this form of Italian luxury sunglasses or that, you know, that that form of Italian luxury good or clothing and things like that. None of that was true in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the Germans weren't known for manufacturing then. The Italians weren't known for that then. Um, that all happens in the 50s and 60s. And one of the points that Jutt makes is that even though World War II was horribly destructive for Germany, um, one of the things that Hitler did in the 1930s was he completely modernized and re- revamped Germany's entire industrial complex. And even though lots of many parts of Germany were destroyed during the war, um, actually a lot of the industrial complex was still there. And the parts that weren't there, the Germans were able to repair very quickly so that they had kind of these efficient economies of scale that could take advantage of all of this you know, U.S. Marshall Fund's investment to build it up as a bulwark against the Soviets. So I say that to say that if somebody like Scholes is saying, hey, the consumer has to really tighten down because we're going to have to spend the premium on security, that might be a country that's not going to do well in this environment. And just because Germany has been so good at manufacturing and some of these other things before doesn't mean that it's going to be good going forward because they've arguably been strategically short-sighted. They depend on Russia for energy. It's going to take significant pain to get off of depending on Russia for energy. Um, So we might look around at different European countries um, that are not the ones that you might expect, but that have invested in infrastructure, or I hesitate to call it France because they have so many other problems, but hey, they have a lot of nuclear. They're not as exposed to some of these energy price things. They can actually focus on other things. Maybe it's looking at parts of the European periphery that have better infrastructure, have better access to ports, and maybe they can take on some of this. So I would also say that embedded in in what we're saying is that it might not just be Germany. And that part of what might be going on here is that these other parts of Europe that have basically been orbiting Germany because Germany was the dominant economic powerhouse, maybe that's not how it's going to work necessarily in the future. Maybe there is an opportunity on the periphery for some of those countries that have been neglected or had to march to the German austerity line. Well, just to bring it back to markets, when I look at these charts, um, Germany, the DAX index does not look very bullish. And, you know, if you compare Germany to, you know, the Spanish index or the Italian index or the French index, even, I mean, they've been in a 15 year uh, bull trend. And um, now when you look, the charts that look like they're looking peppy and trying to break out of these, you know, 15 to 20 year uh, uh, bombed out bear markets are not the German uh, equity indices, it's the Italian equity index. Um, Like, uh, I wish I could show a chart, but if you look at the Italy MIB uh, main stock index, I mean, we've just broken out of a 15 year range and, and we tested the, you know, tested that breakout, um, uh, uh, earlier this year when European stocks sold off and we've hold, we've held so far. 
So um, that's a that's a big development that Mr. Market is telling us about. And I think it supports that notion that the winners here are not necessarily going to be Germany or the traditional leaders. It's it's the laggards that are going to do the best. Um, you know, I think in part because a lot of these indices are dominated by banks. And if you think you're going into a credit-driven investment cycle, then banks are not a bad way to play that. Hmm. Um, let's put a pin in that and move on to um, another thing. And this might even occupy us for the rest of the conversation. But um, you were talking about, um, before we got on the podcast and we were prepping about feeling um, not so sure that grain prices are going to continue to go up. Um, and I think you and I might be seeing different sides of the market here in that place. And I'm honestly not sure who's right. But um, why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about grains and food in part because also just set the stage a little bit because right before we were recording, um, you know, I was writing up our, our global sit rep this week. Um, and one of the things that's happening this week is that the Russians have been signaling, hey, we might be willing to open up the Black Sea, which is where Ukraine's like 98% of Ukraine's exports go out through the Black Sea. The Russians are saying we might be willing to open up the Black Sea for Ukrainian exports if the West decides to remove some of these economic and financial sanctions against us, um, which sort of, and you know, the European Commission president called that blackmail. It absolutely is blackmail. I mean, sort of the West now has a choice whether they want to keep on sanctions against Russia or whether they want to open up the Black Sea and maybe tamp down sort of food prices and especially grain prices and get Ukraine exports out. And then Ukraine is sort of stuck in the middle. So that's some of the backdrop from this week and what's on top of my mind. But um, why don't you lay out why you're thinking that uh, grain prices might um, might not be outperforming here in the near term future? Well, it's not for any fundamental reason. It's really for a psychological reason. And this gets tricky to explain, but I'll try. Um, so first, you went to the uh, GrainCom conference. Is that what it was called last I week? I did, yes, GrainCom. Yeah. And um, my antennae went up talking with you after you got back and you said, oh, you know, there was a lot of interest. Everyone was really bullish, focused on, you know, what's going to go wrong next and logistics and, and all these things. And then the other data point, just to bring it to your own particular experiences, were you know, you had uh, Chase Taylor on the podcast um, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he, he, like yourself, has been writing about grains for years now. And he made a, a funny comment that, you know, his whole Twitter feed is now filled with fertilizer experts, <laughs> um, which rings true. And I guess the background to this is... There's an old adage in trading, especially when you're talking about commodities and very cyclical things, because these markets are extremely efficient um, commodity markets. I mean, there's there's people, you know, there's firms that are sending people to uh, Ivory Coast to measure the Harmattan wind coming in and count every, you know, pod of cocoa. Like, these are not informationally inefficient markets. They're behaviorally inefficient markets. Mm. And what I mean by that is the old adage in these markets is the time to buy something is when those who like who know it best like it least. Um, and you know, 
by the opposite token, the time to to get out or to short something is is when those who know it best like it most. And this feels like one of those those who like it best who know it best like it most kind of moments. And um, it's it's not just in commodities. Uh, in our work with hedge fund clients at Off Wall Street, um, really we focus on identifying a handful of kind of classic psychological setups that create short opportunities. And one of those, which is generally the hardest for people to wrap their heads around is a cyclical short setup. And essentially that's looking at opportunities where in a deeply cyclical business, it's just totally blue skies. Everything's going right. Everyone is bowled up. There's no obvious fundamental reason why anything is gonna be going wrong in the near term future. No cloud on the horizon. And paradoxically, that's exactly the moment when you wanna short those businesses. <laughs> because it's, it's about expectations and what's built into the price. And I'm getting a very similar feeling about grains right now, um, which isn't to say that we're not in a secular bull market in grains. I think that's a very plausible case. And I think probably the, the base case that we should assume. But within a secular bull market, you have massive pullbacks and uh, checkbacks that test the psychology of the bulls, and that's what provides the fuel for the bull market to continue. So I think there's a really high probability that you get a similar setback in the near term, um, just based on psychology, sentiment, and the fact that everyone seems to agree on this thing, which is should be terrifying. I mean, that, that's the that's the most uh, annoying thing or difficult thing about being a an investor as opposed to just an analyst is you have to be so paranoid because as soon as everyone agrees with you, you're, you're wrong. Um, and that's very hard to deal with because it's easy to be triumphant. Oh yes, I called the grains right. Now everyone sees it. Um, you know, Hugh Hendry, the, uh, the, uh, the former macro hedge fund manager, I remember him doing an interview, uh, with, uh, with, uh, Drobny in uh, in his book Invisible Hands, mm -hmm. and he's talking about the period in two thousand seven two thousand eight in the last grain bull market, and he was, you know, he was riding it all the way up. He was early. He caught the the move, and then he had this interesting comment where he said, you know, it was spring of two thousand eight, and then he's at that point he was going to the conferences and he was looking around and and if i'm sure a lot of the listeners will know hugh hendry you know he's a very contrarian uh kind of iconoclastic figure and he said he started looking around and everyone was agreeing with him and nodding their heads and saying oh yeah that's right I, that makes total sense and that's when he started to get terrified and he got out of that trade and he was you know he was buying potash core of Saskatchewan with both fists and totally turned that around and that turned out to be exactly the right move because corn prices went from eight dollars a bushel to three dollars a bushel shortly thereafter and um, you know that's that's really hard to do uh, but that's that's the environment I think we're we're moving into right now yeah w one of the most interesting things about working 
with you directly um, and and making geopolitics and markets sort of talk to each other or making those analytical techniques line up has been that um, you're right. So much of it is psychological, and sometimes the fundamental—I I don't want to say that the fundamental arguments don't matter—but sometimes I'll come to you and say, "Hey, I, I think fundamentally something is really bad," and you'll be like, "Great, that's a wonderful reason to, to buy this." <laughs> like we like when things are bad because that means that everybody thinks it's bad, and there's an opportunity there. Um, and I think you're you're underselling, I think, the tenor of the conference that I was at. Um, it was full-on food crisis. I mean, people running around. Tr- tr- trying to figure out how to get food to different parts of the world because there's just going to be shortages and things like that. The, and I, I would also say that the long arc of history is with you on this. So if I, if I had a chart, one of the charts that I showed at Greencom was the, I love our world and data. They literally had British wheat prices going back all the way to the 1200s. And it's just this beautiful chart that continues going down and down and down. And then you hit the 1800s and the agricultural revolution and it just plummets. And basically what's been happening for the last 250 years is we are producing higher and higher yields of things like corn and like wheat for less and less uh, money, basically. The, the price of, of production of those things has been going down and the price of food has been going down because we are producing so much more. And you had that blip in 2007 and 2008. But if you zoom in on just the last couple of years, food prices are doing something they really haven't done in 250 years, which is they're going up. And there are a lot of different explanations for that. Um, weather has just been particularly bad lately, and some of that is climate change. Some of that is bad luck. I was reading about how we might have a triple dip La Nina now, like some weather forecasters are calling for that next year, which would exacerbate these issues even more. Um, you, know, you do have this issue with we we depend on fertilizer to get those yields, to increase those yields, and Russia and Belarus have a lot of fertilizer, and it's hard to, to replicate those markets. So if they're off the market... That's going to mean bad things for farmers and the ability to produce yield. The Russia-Ukraine war just kind of adds more to that. We haven't even talked about India's heat wave. So there are a lot of fundamental issues. But I think you're right that um, that I think that the the issue, the, the food issue has become, it, it's like the new fad. Now everybody wants a piece of it. So I wonder if the fundamental issue can stay there and that if you're going to have some kind of some kind of downturn just because the people who don't know this market well but who are playing around because they're they're being caught into the narrative are in there and they're going to get burned but that the long term um and by long term i mean the, the sort of the next 12 to 18 months i think that long term arc is still probably going to be up unless europe gives up on the on the russia sanctions or unless we get some kind of major turn in the weather situation because the the fundamentals do look grim sort of no matter how you slice and dice them. Yeah, 12 to 18 months, I don't know. That's beyond my my ken at this point. Um, but I think the, the way to think about this, um, just more generally, and as a, a nice rule of thumb, if you're a macro-oriented trader or, or, or a bottom-up uh, investor, is when you're dealing with these very cyclical things, the thing to look for is when good news comes out and the price doesn't respond anymore. Um, That's usually a sign that things are very overextended and any sort of bad news, and it doesn't mean, hey, you know, the secular bull market is over or any of the things that you mentioned are not valid because they are valid. That's what creates the conditions for this, because logically it makes so much sense. 
Um, but when you reach that point where it's so stretched and sentiment becomes so aggressively bullish and unanimous, it's the vulnerability to any chink in the armor that is what creates, you know, the 40 to 50% drawdown that shakes out a lot of uh, people who are long and, and sets the stage for the next run. So 18 months from now, you know, I don't know, corn prices could be $20 for all I know. But that's not to say that they couldn't go back down to four in the meantime. Um, so, you know, I think that's, it's always tricky to wrap your arms around, but if you ever find yourself owning an asset and, you know, the fundamental news comes out, oh, yields are worse than they expected, or, oh, you know, the company beat earnings and the stock is not going up or the price is not going up, that should strike fear in your heart. Um, yeah, although you're sort of cutting against your own argument there because, I mean, it, there's been nothing but bad news on grains for months now and it continues to be more, more bad news and the price continues to go up. <laughs> it's not, I mean, I guess what, you, has it been stagnant this week is, is what you've been saying? Uh, bad news meaning, meaning bullish news for prices or bad news for prices? Oh yeah, when I'm saying bad news, I'm thinking in terms of the price of these of these food staples are going to be going up. So I guess good news from the point of view is as investing in it as a commodity. I mean, it's been nothing but India is hotter than we thought, and Argentina is extending its water emergency, and we might have a double dip La Nina. And yes, we got some we got some rain in the United States, but you know we're still suffering a long drought in the United States. I mean, there's just so many kind of negative indicators on. Uh, there's so many indicators that are going to push food prices up more that you would think that grain prices are going to continue to go up. But I didn't, I didn't actually look at this week. Um, I, I feel like at the beginning of the week, maybe wheat was down a little bit, but corn was continuing to grow up, uh, go up. But, um, well, no, I think what you just said is what I'm trying to say. So there's been a lot of news that should cause prices to make new highs because it's been, it's been all terrible news for yields and production and heat waves and, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but the price of soybeans peaked in the week of March 21st and the price of corn uh, peaked in the week of April 25th. I don't have wheat in front of me here, but, um, you know, wheat uh, peaked right at the beginning of the war and, is below the level of where it was three weeks ago. So that's what I mean is like, oh, well, my God, these things should be making new highs. And maybe they will. This isn't some short-term timing call. It's about the risks that are built into these prices here. And I think those risks are very much underappreciated. And that's typically the sign is when you get, you know, India heat wave news and, you know, wheat is not above the March 7th level mm. or, you know, corn yields are worse than were being uh, projected and yet corn can't make new highs. That's, that should really worry bulls. Hmm. Before we close out, how does, um, cause you, we've talked about this before internally. I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast, but what about, do you feel that there's a similar psychological setup for energy, specifically oil? Um, or is that a different kind of setup? No, I think uh, a very similar thing applies. And um, uh, 
partly, uh, I mean, you have to think of oil futures and oil and energy stocks, which are two different things. Um, but just to focus on the stocks, you know, I talked about this last week when I jumped on my hobby horse about <laughs> oil versus technology and how that really doesn't make much sense when you look at the long term. Um, but in the meantime, it's funny because I got a, an email from a, an acquaintance who is, um, uh, who's in, involved in the markets, uh, an individual guy, not a professional guy. And uh, he, he said this week, well, you know, I'm doing really well this year because um, I'm up 8% this year because I, uh, I own energy stocks and I'm really bulled up. Thank God I owned that energy because, you, you know, and, and this is the, I don't mean to pick on this guy, but this is the common sentiment. The people who've owned energy this year feel like heroes and feel super smart because all these, you know, um, diamond hands people are getting, uh, are, are crying in their beer. Um, well, I think, I think they also feel that way because they feel like energy has been a dirty word for the past two or three years and that everything was growth and ESG and all these other things. And, and so it almost became personal in a way for, for both sides of that argument. I think the, the aversion to the energy companies that literally, you know, for better and for worse, allow us to live our modern lives. Um, you know, created those investment opportunities and the people who doubled down on that. It, I think it wasn't just a fundamental argument. It was also this kind of, it got wrapped up in this weird personal thing. I think I, that, that feels like it's in it to that when I see people taking victory laps on that. Oh, totally. Because in energy, you know, part of it is there's always a constituency that always owns energy no matter what. And those mm -hmm. guys were just being so maligned for the last five, six years that it's natural that there's a, um, a comeuppance. And in full disclosure, I mean, we, uh, we were buying energy for our income uh, strategy at Cognitive hand over fist when, you know, everyone was talking about how oil is, is, is secularly going away and uh, these companies were zeros and all this stuff. And people looked at us like we had two heads. Mm -hmm. And this isn't to pat ourselves on the back because we still own those, those stocks. Um, but you know, you have to manage your own psychology. And rather than be congratulating ourselves, I'm more and more worried about our, our holding those stocks. And, um, you know, at least for the short term, we have a very long time horizon. But certainly over the next four to six months, similar to the grain situation, I think there's really a ton of risk in that area that's built up that's, that's not really acknowledged or recognized. And part of that is this sort of victory lap um, mentality. Part of it is the fact that investors have been hiding in energy, and that's the only thing that's worked this year. Um, whereas if you just look at the high level, when the US is, is experiencing a growth slowdown, I mean, this is classic late cycle behavior. Energy is always the last thing that peaks. Um, so based on that rule of thumb, you should be worried. Um, so anyway, that's not to go too far down that rabbit hole, but uh, I would be, I would be cautious about energy right now if I owned a lot of these things and were feeling quite good about myself for doing so. Yeah, it seems to be the, the <laughs> you're, you never, you can never allow yourself to feel good about something because that's the moment when, uh, when you probably make a mistake. 
<laughs> well, that's the sad reality of managing investments for a living. Is as soon as you start patting yourself on the back, you're going to get walloped. Yeah, I, f- I feel the same way about geopolitics. I'm I'm only as good as my my most recent best idea. So you know, can't continue to dine out on that beautiful report I did six months ago. It's like, hey man, like what's going on? <laughs> you got to come up with something new. Um, we're at forty six minutes. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before we sign off, Rob? I don't think so. Happy Memorial okay. Day is all. Happy Memorial Day. Uh, we will see y'all at the usual time next week. Take care of each other. See you out there. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about cognitive investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.